0: Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Whitty. I am here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. we got two hours of going against the grain to do and a lot lot to talk about. We've got a decision finally in the Arizona governor's race.
1: Yeah, finally. Yeah. It came last Mm -hmm. night, and uh, as many predicted, including us, Mm -hmm. uh, Katie Hobbs, the now former Secretary of State of Arizona, has defeated... uh, Kerry Lake, the former uh, newscaster. And uh, yeah, it uh, it was close. It was very, very close.
0: We've also got quite a lot of uh, trolling from the never Trump Republicans. Uh, Notably, I saw Liz Cheney getting in there. Oh, yeah. uh, A few others. Oh, we've got uh, more jockeying for Republican leadership that we are going to talk about. Continues to be an extremely good time watching that go down. Uh, We're going to talk about some addresses to the G20. Uh, We had the president of Ukraine uh, laying out a peace plan that is not going to go anywhere uh, realistically. Uh, And we got the revelation that maybe there is a little bit more diplomacy underway regarding that conflict uh, than than meets the eye. We are going to talk about journalists being booted from Kherson. Uh, We have got a very contentious resignation from the Border Patrol. Uh, that's, you
1: know this this is way more interesting than it seems on the surface Yeah, of and
0: it really has not gotten very much like the LA no. Times I saw the LA Times is reporting on it earlier this week Right um but yeah seems like they had to force that guy out for for what they're saying they're saying he just didn't do anything He
1: he's, he's only been in the position for 10 and a half months yeah. almost 11 months He's the former police chief of Tucson Arizona and some little town in California like Richmond California I think is what it is And um They said that he um, routinely falls asleep in high-level meetings, including meetings at the White House. He says it's because he has MS and he's taking medication for MS. It knocks him out and he's sorry he falls asleep in the meetings. But then, you know, the the border situation is kind of a crisis right now. Mm -hmm. And rather than deal with the crisis— As an example, he requested an emergency meeting with Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas recently. Mayorkas assumed it's because this guy Magnus just got back from the border. He wants to talk about the border. Instead, all he wanted to do was yell at the yell about the commissioner of the uh, of ICE uh, because they don't like each other and they don't get along.
0: Yeah. I mean, it sounds like, well, I'll be interested to hear what our guest and and you have to say about it later. But it does seem like I mean, yeah, talk about that. I mean, it is it is what however you feel about immigration. It sure. is a high profile and very important issue, whether it, it you truly think is immigration itself is a problem in the number of people arriving or whether you think the, the way that it is being handled politically. That's right. Is an extremely, uh, you know, dangerous problem. So we'll talk about that. Uh, we are going to finally talk a little bit about what's coming out of COP27, which has been pretty quiet, to be honest. It has, um, even
1: though, like, major leaders from around the world have participated. Yeah,
0: I mean, Joe Biden spoke there over the yeah. weekend. Nancy Pelosi,
1: John Kerry.
0: Not getting, not getting a ton of attention. No. And there is, of course, fighting over funding uh, both of future projects and loss and reparations. So we'll talk about where where things stand there. Uh, we are going to get a report from the academic strike in California that should be pretty interesting. Uh, we are going to ask what to expect from the U.S. investigation into the death of Shireen Abu Akhla, um which was revealed, basically revealed yesterday by Israel saying, we're mad about it. They're, and then it's come furious. out that actually the FBI is, is looking into it. But of course, we, we want to start by what I think has got to be one of the biggest stories of the day which is this revelation about just how many informants the FBI had in the Proud Boys organization. So we learned earlier this month that the vice president of the Oath Keepers, the vice president, had been informing to the FBI for months. Uh, How many informants did the FBI have in another organization that is accused of uh, being, you know, one one of the groups that was really trying to make January 6th a coup and not a riot, the Proud Boys? It
1: was eight.
0: That seems like a lot. In
1: the leadership. We're not talking about Joe Blow, FBI informant, who happens to be on the mailing list. Right. We're talking about the leadership of the organization. Eight of them were either FBI informants or FBI agents. Now, this is exactly what the FBI did in the 1960s uh, with with anti-war groups, with uh, black power groups, political groups. They infiltrate, disrupt and inform. Mm -hmm. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, And they're still doing it. We shouldn't be. We shouldn't be shocked that the FBI had infiltrated these groups. No. That's what they do. What we should be shocked at and disappointed over is the fact that the FBI knew all this stuff was going to happen and they did nothing to stop it.
0: I mean, it is, it does raise a lot of questions, right? This sure has does. been blamed on, you know, the Capitol police got a lot of blame for, uh, for allowing things to get out of hand, right? There's been all this criticism about with the national guard, should they have been called out again? Uh, the sort of, uh, the, uh, wing of the media that are like right wing watchers were saying for weeks, Hey, there's something, something's going to happen. Like people are planning stuff, whatever. Oh Yes.
1: And the cops were aware. The DC police
0: and the Capitol police. This took everyone totally by surprise. That's right. And couldn't possibly have been prevented. It was just sort of whoopsies in every case, but you know, it's all failures of communication, chaos, whatever. Well, Hey man, if you'd known it was coming, he could have prevented all of this. Let right. me tell you a funny line fra- that I just caught in this New York Times story about how this could have happened. because uh, of course they say they're concerned about why the informants weren't able to give the government advance warning about plans to storm the Capitol. Former FBI officials say there might have been gaps in what bureau intelligence analysts had told agents to ask their informants. Uh, so yes. they didn't they didn't ask specifically, Blame the "Hey, are you are you planning a coup?"
1: Uh-huh. Blame the analyst, which is Another thing that the FBI has always done. Yeah. When FBI agents fall down on the job, it's always the analyst's fault.
0: So but seriously, like if, if you're an informant inside one of these organizations and and, you know, as is alleged, right, mm-hmm. they are planning at like political violence, you know, viol- violence with a political end. They are going to steal the election, yes. et cetera. You're not going to tell that. To your handler, unless you're asked, unless they give you the open sesame, right. it just doesn't make any sense no, to me.
1: none whatsoever.
0: It doesn't make any sense. It is also interesting, you know, the lawyers for some of these, uh, for for some of these Proud Boys in particular, are saying, no, you know, the the they actually didn't know. It was, the, the fact that they're in the leadership makes this hard to believe, right? If you're, again, like, you're sort of a loose affiliate of the Proud Boys and you're looking on... Facebook and you see that there's going to be some kind of party and you're going to come out and support Donald Trump, whatever. Sure. I can see your lawyer saying they didn't know anything about. Sure. It. They didn't know anything about this. But if these guys are in the leadership, I mean, who else is supposed to be planning this? That's stuff? right. Exactly.
1: Yeah.
0: It really it, it 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 is very strange and does raise serious questions that I can't possibly answer, but real questions about how how much of this was allowed to happen, right? And again, how much of this was uh, maybe this did sort of run run farther than the FBI expected, but what's responsible behavior? If you think, you know what are the what are the chances of a, a uh, mob attempting to break into the Capitol? Like what what kind of chances would you have to odds do you have to give it before you try right. to prevent it? Right.
1: Yeah, Good question.
0: It's ridiculous. You
1: know, and we're in this weird period now where both sides either directly or indirectly acknowledge that the FBI is politicized. Right. On the one hand, excuse me, among Republicans, um, they believe that the FBI is working on behalf of Democrats, working against Donald Trump, et cetera, et cetera. The Democrats and I don't know any Democrats who believe that that's true or at least will acknowledge that that's true. but. The Democrats then have backed off to the point where they're not asking any questions about the FBI. No, because they're going to make them look bad. Exactly.
0: Yeah. And nobody wants our, you know, intelligence, vaunted intelligence agencies to look bad. Because then how will the public believe them when they tell you to be very scared of this or that or the other entity for whatever reason? Exactly. So you can't, you know, you can't reform them. Because if anything's gone wrong, then, you know, it it raises all all kinds of questions that are inconvenient for the people who benefit from those fears. Yes, precisely. The other weird thing that I learned in this that we mentioned, I mean, I don't know what there is to say about it except, huh, weird. Um, uh, The the informant in the Oath Keepers, uh, the former vice president of the organization, this guy Greg McWhorter, Mm -hmm. was supposed to testify uh, last week in that trial. Yeah. On the eve of his planned appearance, he had a heart attack. Yeah. He was gonna he was testifying for the defense.
1: For the defense.
0: Yeah. Yes. I mean, again, not suggesting he didn't have a heart attack or anything. It's just like it just gets That's weirder. Some stress. Just gets weirder and weirder.
1: Indeed it does.
0: Yeah. So we will keep an eye on this. But yeah, I mean the sheer number of people in there. it not a surprise to us, right? But maybe a surprise to to yeah. some people who think the FBI are the good guys still for some reason. Yeah. Also today at 2:30 uh there's going to be a report that I think we will talk about in more detail tomorrow but um uh John Ossoff who is chair of the Senate uh Com- Committee on Investigations. Investigations it's got a weird it's got mm-hmm. a weird name um they have done a report into the mistreatment of women in Prisons and, in particular, uh, unnecessary or unwanted medical treatments that women undergo. Thrilled to see this. Yeah, and so that seems like uh, that apparently uh, got its start after some expose of a of a private facility in Atlanta uh, where women were saying they were being forced to undergo treatments that they didn't want or didn't need. So we will take a look. That's going to be. Let me
1: add something too, please, from my own prison experience. If they tell you to get something done and you refuse, that's considered to be insubordination. And you go to solitary. Oh, that's you terrible. You have no control over your body in prison. So okay. this is a big deal. Kudos to Asaf for, for taking this up.
0: Yeah. And, you know, this came to light, uh, I'm not sure how long ago, a year, maybe two years now. Time, guys. It's so hard to keep track of. Um, but there were allegations that uh, immigrant women who were in mm-hmm. these detention centers mm-hmm. uh, had been subject to medical treatments that they didn't want, that That's they didn't right. need, including like st- sterile. I suspect a lot of this is going to be about sterilization. Without a doubt. Um, and Watch so, yeah, and it's, it's terrible. And I'm glad that they are following up on it. I mean, we'll see what kind of, uh, you know, what kind of results we we get. Yes. Um, also... <laughs> We've got, we don't want to forget, we got Trump's big announcement coming, coming tonight. This evening. We do have a Sputnik correspondent who's going to be down at Mar-a-Lago for the announcement. I'm going to say, again, obviously he is probably going to say he's running for president. I'm just going to say the chances are not zero that he just unveils a big plaque. To himself about yep. himself, and says he just wanted to gather everyone together to remind you that he was America's greatest president of oh, all yeah. time. Well, he did. But say now you today, get now you get what you deserve with the other guys. Right. or Something like that. I'm not saying. I, I think that. it's likely. I'm just saying it's, it's not impossible. He
1: did say today will go down as one of the greatest days in the history of the United States. Today,
0: <laughs> great.
1: Yes. Can't wait. I can't I, wait to. And I actually have some numbers we're gonna talk about later in the uh, later in the broadcast. Oh yeah. Uh yeah, it's gonna be kind of fun. Trump numbers? Trump numbers.
0: Interesting. Yeah. I wanna hear what they serve at this Mar a Lago party. <laughs> so I hope our correspondent down there actually gets his hands on well, some of those drinks and some of those hors d'oeuvres and can tell us about their quality. I'm very curious. You
1: know, Tiffany Trump got married over the weekend. Cheap
0: rich people are one of my favorite oh, topics. Yeah. Awesome. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Tiffany got married over the weekend at Mar-a-Lago. She she married this Lebanese billionaire guy, which is funny to me because now he's got a daughter who's a Muslim. He's got a daughter that's a Jew and and the rest of his kids are Christians. It's Mm -hmm. kind of funny. But anyway, um, when he was giving the toast at the reception, the whole toast was about how he got screwed out of the 2020 (laughs) election. (laughs)
0: So great. (laughs) Father of the year. Scandalous. Father of the year.
1: Although one of his campaign aides even said, this was about a year ago, um, that he wouldn't recognize his daughter Tiffany if she walked up to him on the street and introduced herself.
0: Yeah, I mean, honestly. Yeah. Then there was, and now we've devolved into celebrity gossip, but I don't care because it is is. funny. There was that uh, going around that Ivanka Trump had cropped uh, Kimberly Guilfoyle out of the picture
1: of them all. (laughs) What was that about? I saw that in the New York Post today. You know,
0: maybe she doesn't like her. Wow. She's probably... She's probably unlikable.
1: <laughs> Trump, tough crowd. She probably is unlikable. Yeah. yeah.
0: And then, of course, a little bit more news about the Trump family. <laughs> Apparently, his name is not mud everywhere because they've just struck a deal with a Saudi real estate company yeah. to license the Trump name to a housing and golf complex in Oman.
1: Yeah. Good luck with that. Yeah. And you know, uh, there was there was a Trump Tower in Istanbul, and um, they just quietly took the name down.
0: Hmm. Well, they're building one in Muscat. Um, probably. Be- it sounds like beautiful like a a beautiful spot Uh, overlooking the Gulf of Oman. I'm sure. Oman's a
1: stunning place. It really
0: is. Uh, I've also been, I remain fascinated with this FTX saga. Uh, And I, we will try to find someone who can go into more detail uh, about it with us. But like they filed for bankruptcy. Then there were reports in the, in the wall street journal that Sam Bankman Fried. Uh, was working the phones even over the weekend. I mean, maybe you can say to his credit, trying to come up with some way to make investors whole. Yes. Um, But it does seem like there are, perhaps FTX could have more than a million creditors and is being looked at by regulators around the world. Well, what makes it so astonishing to me is one, I mean, let's not forget, like this guy was treated as totally legit, he was a huge Democratic Party donor. Yes, he uh, he FTX had a page on the World Economic Forum website where they're saying, wow. "Oh, like here's there's this this super legit business that we are invested in." You know, he's sharing a stage with Bill Clinton and Tony mm-hmm. Blair. Sure. And uh, the fact, the thing that I think is is actually much more telling than than is getting credit for is that until pretty recently, uh, Binance or maybe even Co- I don't know if Coinbase was was going to buy it, but some of these other crypto platforms. We're going to buy it. Sure. But I mean, yeah. which again, it's, it's, it's they were it is completely worthless now, yeah. right? He's worth, he's worthless. worth nothing. Yep. So the fact that until quite recently, these other supposedly legit, cause they still exist, uh, trading platforms, we're going to buy it mm-hmm. again. Should mm-hmm. you just you lift the cup up? There is no shell under there. Yes, you know what I mean. That's right. There's and also nothing the fact there. that all of these guy, all of these major Silicon Valley and Wall Street uh, investment companies are putting money into it means yes. they're not lifting the cup up either because no. they know there's nothing under there. Yeah, it's just it's just a networking game. Honestly, and, that and is we, what it is. And
1: we still don't have real oversight. I mean, no, crypto has been around for more than a decade. The government's been talking about it for a long time, but we still don't have oversight.
0: And uh, what, uh, honestly, you know, uh, oversight is only as as uh, in, you know effective, yeah. as as it is, you know, as it is uh, rigorously implemented. Sure. So, so theoretically, we have oversight of of Wall Street, but psh, right, you know, right. I mean, who knows? Maybe Gary this Gensler is, uh, is and Lena Connor, uh, you know, really going to get out there and, and get after people. That would be that would be great to see, you know, with the limited tools they have available. Yeah. Anyway, uh, it's a fascinating story. We haven't even gotten into the polyamory that appears to be part of it or the drugs. that Everyone seems so to be on. But maybe we'll find somebody who can tell us all their dirty, dark secrets. Um I think we can just go straight. I know we have our next guest on the yes. line. We can go straight into uh, more serious topics. We've got Zelensky at the G20. Uh, we've got uh, who exactly is allowed to report from and about Kherson. We're going to talk about some uh, wild rumors about what's happening in Iran and the uh, just how convenient it is that we remain ignorant enough about uh, our official enemies to believe this kind of stuff. There's a lot to get into. Joining us for it is Mark Sloboda. He's an international affairs and security analyst. Mark, thanks for being here.
2: Michelle, John, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on political misfits, but um, I'm not sure I can top polyamory in drugs.
0: Boy, <laughs> it's 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 pretty funny. We don't you don't have to. We keep it, we keep it PG on this show, Mark. Uh, let's talk about, I, I don't believe you, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, nothing I can say is probably, uh, good to say on the air. Um, let's talk about, uh, Mark Slovoda is making me blush now. I'm like, <laughs> I'm thinking of dirty jokes, but I can't say. Volodymyr Zelensky, uh, to throw some cold water here on the conversation. He addressed the G20 today. He presented what he called a 10 point peace plan does not seem like it It has a prayer as it involves uh, reasserting, you know, the, the territorial integrity of Ukraine. It is unclear if this plan includes Crimea, but it does not seem like Russia is going to be interested in withdrawing further from what it considers Russian territory anytime soon. It would also involve legally binding security agreements from NATO countries, which uh, would seem to still be a sticking point for Washington. Uh, And Russia says this is pointless anyway, because uh, Ukraine cannot and does not want to negotiate. And so I wonder if you just think, was there anything notable in this in this G20 address, Mark?
2: Yeah, I I think it's really uh, sweet. Uh, that Zelensky uh, is so optimistic. I mean, the world needs its optimists, and he's ob- obviously optimistic that his regime is uh, winning this conflict, uh, and that P- victory uh, for his regime and peace is right around the corner. And you know, uh, you know, go go for it. I mean, you know, wishful thinking. Uh, but um, I have uh, no faith uh, that this conflict uh, is a is uh, anywhere near its end. Russia has just called up three hundred thousand reservists, only a fraction of which uh, have been on the battlefield. Uh, and- But most of them will be within the next month, Um, and um, I am quite sure that we are going to see a Russian uh, winter offensive. Uh, Part of their reason, uh, certainly for withdrawing from Harrison city, not that the Kiev regime won any battlefield victories there. Uh, They were continually repulsed from Russian defensive lines, but Russia is planning for a long war, quite obviously, and uh, they are going to be intent on where they're going to focus their offensive forces, both right now, where they are also conducting offensives in two different places in Donetsk. Three three different places in Donetsk actually the uh, Bakhmut, uh, Avdevka, and also in southern Donetsk in Oogledar. Uh and all of those are showing uh, signs uh, of of uh, what I think could be considered uh, moderate success against what. Western military analysts have described as the most fortified place on Earth, these defensive lines in Donetsk, which is saying something when you're saying that they're more fortified than the DMZ in Korea. Um, But this is not going to end anytime soon. Um, I don't see that any side is ready for it. Uh, serious negotiations whether you're talking about the US and Russia or whether you're talking about Russia and the regime uh, in Kiev um.
0: so what do you make of the uh- these comments that France uh France spoke to Sergei Lavrov, uh that Emmanuel Macron is is interested in speaking with Vladimir Putin, because you know, we mentioned on the show we have we have national security advisors between Russia and the US apparently talking. We have the intelligence chiefs meeting in Ankara uh yesterday or the day before, but we haven't had diplomats in conversation with That's each right. other. So do you do you think it's at all significant that um apparently Currently, you know, fr- France is at least willing to talk uh, on that level.
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, Macron has spoken to the Russian president several times before the conflict and and has, it seems every time he opens his mouth uh, on the subject, he's saying quite contradictory different things. But I think it's his idea of of that his his words can contradict his actions and that's being a statesman uh but macron's effort uh efforts at diplomacy at playing the statesman did not succeed before the conflict and uh there's no indication that they're succeeding now or that russia considers france anything more than another uh, western party to the conflict and there's no indication that the russian president reciprocates and has any desire to speak to Macron. So um, I, I don't expect anything from this.
0: Do you want to talk about uh, what is going on in Kyrgyzstan with regards to the media? Because apparently Sky <laughs> News and CNN broke the rules and had their accreditation yanked. Ukrainian officials are saying this is because the situation is still too dangerous. I have also seen speculation that it's because of some embarrassing footage that made it out of victory celebrations there, including uh, what looked like Nazi salutes from a parade. Uh, What what do you think is going on?
2: Yeah, I I think the problem here is that, see, the uh, the regime did not come out and say exactly uh, which media outlets uh, had, you know, uh, were receiving this. Uh, punishment, uh, this um, removal of their credations, but we know from those uh, involved that it has been involved with several uh, CNN and Sky News journalists, and um, uh, I I think we have all seen the real reason, or maybe we haven't, I don't know, but CNN, at least once on air, showed footage of uh, uh, Kiev regime troops um, uh, parading into... Uh, uncontested, because Russia had completely withdrawn Kherson, and um, there were some people there to greet them. As the Washington Post said, raucous crowds of hundreds of Ukrainians. Hundreds. Mm -hmm. Um, There were 200,000 people. Uh, people in uh Kherson uh as of about a month ago and we know that ab- about 100 110,000 uh accepted Russia's evacuation proposals uh somewhere between 80 and 100,000 did not but to to get a big crowd of uh, of hundreds hmm. Hmm, it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't uh, exactly seem like a a, um, a, a huge outpouring of uh, joyous sentiment to me. I mean I'm doubtless some people were but it really doesn't seem like it was the majority to me but uh, during these parades they CNN quite openly showed video of a Ki um, regime uh, militant on top of a military vehicle. F- uh, with the ukrainian flag flying right there in one hand and a nazi salute i mean yeah. pretty yeah. unmistakable unquestionable on the other and uh it just kind of like no comment um we we weren't supposed to show that part out loud and uh we have also seen video uh and and um uh, photo footage of uh, what the Kiev regime has already uh, its usual cleansing operation, uh, declaring people to be collaborators. And we have heard previously in hard cough from um, uh, Kiev regime officials that the collaborators are in some cases being shot like the dogs that they are um, – And um, in other cases, uh, they have been taken. It's not clear whether they will receive any judicial um, process, but we have already seen footage of several of them being taped to posts in public squares. Um, And I suspect that this is the real reason why these journalists had their accreditation pulled and things were Kind of covered up because the Kip regime is still in the midst of their cleansing operations, and the punishment is for showing the, the those things out loud that they should have known. Now there were other journalists uh, in there that did not have their accreditation pulled and did not show any of this. Yeah. But for those who you know uh, might question this, I mean, you can of course watch the footage yourself. It's on the internet. It's out there. Yeah. I'm sure CNN isn't not going to show it to you, but also. Uh, Even the Washington Post is running the articles, uh, Ukrainian security officers hunt the enemy within, um, talking about their search for the hundreds, thousands of Ukrainians uh, who seem to be collaborating with Russia for some reason. It's almost as if they don't fully support the regime, which overthrew their government and seized power in the country in 2014. I wonder if that has something to do with it.
0: Yeah. I also I, I want to ask about, you know, it, the the saying the quiet part loud thing is a, is a little bit cliche at this point. But there's this New York Times story um, that says for Western weapons, the Ukraine war is a beta test. And I feel like this is something that was often said about Afghanistan, certainly the latter decade of that war, that the point of the war there was to provide a proving ground for weapons and, you know, for just people to sort of make money. But I didn't think I don't recall seeing like the Washington Post or the New York Times running stories about that. And so yet in this story, you have the, the vice prime minister of Ukraine telling NATO at a conference in Norfolk, Virginia, last month that Ukraine is the best test ground as we have the opportunity to test all hypotheses in battle and introduce revolutionary change in military tech and modern warfare. It just feels like I'm trying to figure out why this is unsettling to me, other than the obvious idea that, like, you know, these are real people who are who are really dying. Whatever your opinion of uh, the the sort of justification or motivations for this conflict, people people are going to die for those justifications and motivations. And like marketing the country as a great place to test weapons just feels wrong, especially when from what I can see, you know, the Ukraine has done very like the Ukraine war has been sold uh, to the American people, very, very effectively, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like you need to look for another angle to keep flogging it. You know, like we we are paying, we're bought, we're we're paid in, and so. I'm trying to, I guess I'm sort of asking you, does it, does it unsettle you? Is there something we should take away from stories like these that should tell us a little bit about, about the nature of this conflict? Cause I just don't recall, you know, seeing a leader coming over and saying, no, 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 please keep investing in, in, in this conflict because my country is a great place to test your weapons.
2: Yeah. Um, this maybe doesn't touch me the same way because I'm, previous U.S. military. Yeah, maybe um, I'm naive here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, every military conflict, all sides in every military conflict that have any type of serious capability are, of course, testing weapons. They're testing um, tactics. They're testing uh, intelligence uh, gathering methods. They're testing all sorts of things. That's happening uh, on both sides of this conflict. Russia is testing new things. Uh, but— um, You know, uh, as with most conflicts, you are getting to see your uh, opponents' uh, defenses, their new weapons, their tactics, right, in real time. The U.S. has a little bit of advantage here because it's just small often in in most cases exactly test size amounts of their weapons uh on display nothing uh, that might uh, you know give away more information than is absolutely necessary right um Uh, They have an advantage here because they're getting to see Russian actual troops in action and using their weapon systems. Of course, the Russian military is being far quieter about it when they're testing new weapons like they're – uh, new uh, Iranian-designed drones, uh, drone, drone. You know the uh, the designs that they got from Iran for domestically produced geranium uh, drones, uh, but also their own um, uh, weapons to jam uh, drones. Uh, other ep- episodes of electronic warfare. However, you know the U.S. is really. Um, Perhaps because the focus is on this US technology uh, that is being provided with to Kiev and the idea that every new wonder weapon is the miracle weapon that's going to change the tide of battle. So there is a lot of press around it. And certainly the military industrial complex is using this to try to sell their weapons. It, and to be fair i think the russian side and and we can see the iranians as well and the other nato countries that are providing weapons they're all doing this the us sure. is just doing it louder and I, more obviously than everyone else i think
0: that's it and i think that's why i you know it always like sort of takes me a little bit it takes me a little bit of conversation to figure out what it is that doesn't sit quite right and i think it's because yeah we are we are told the united states government is is funding uh, Ukraine's funding U- Ukraine's government and Ukraine's armed services because we care about democracy. And that's the end of our interest in Ukraine. And any suggestion <laughs> otherwise is, is treacherous. Yeah. And it is an absolute contradiction to present stories like this, right, where it's obvious that, you know, you even you have uh, Ukrainian officials coming to sell the conflict to our uh, to NATO and to weapons contractors as a great testing ground. And nowhere in the reporting, I think, is the connection that goes, well, huh? You know, I It seem this would seem to make the conflict more complicated. I think that is what it bothers me. Right? There's a there's a sort of brick in the wall yeah. missing, and 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 you it, it, it's so obvious on its face that this is evidence that this complicated is much more complicated than the the conflict is much more complicated than the sort of standard U.S. narrative, and yet everyone acts like. This story can sit very comfortably next to the story about how we're giving Ukraine four hundred million more dollars to defend democracy, but don't call it a proxy war. You know, like it's Uh, we have no interest in in checking out Russia's weapons systems and testing ours against them using Ukraine as a battlefield. How dare you suggest that, even though the New York Times is writing it? Yeah, (laughs) that's what I think it is. I figured it out.
2: Yeah, they're they're. This does work both ways, of course, because, yeah, yeah, I mean, the the article you're mentioning in The New York Times, they make a big deal out of this um, uh, battlefield, uh, real-time organization tool, Delta, which is being – it has U.S. satellite and other intelligence data fed directly into tablets that are handed out to um, uh, Ukrainian forces and then – basically things are analyzed and they get their marching orders right through the tablets uh what to hit where and and so forth but at the same time delta has been hacked uh and it it was quite an embarrassing display of that we have seen um um Uh, Elon Musk's Starlink be jammed when the Russian military really wants to uh, and be taken offline. And uh, we have seen, uh, you know, the uh, U.S. premier multiple launch rocket system, the HIMARS. Um, It seems that the uh, Russian air defense systems have a uh, pretty high success rate, um, uh, at taking, uh, its, uh, uh, rockets out of the air. And it is quite often only a success when the Kiev uses their other, uh, much older, say Soviet, uh, legacy systems that, that they have, um, in first and firing rapid volleys of that to, uh, all try to overwhelm the Russian defense with response that the HIMARS then get through. So this works both ways. And um, astute buyers of – States uh, that are looking to shopping for military technology could see the flaws as well as the successes. But I guess that is what the whole um, media involved as the marketing agents uh, for the US uh, military industrial uh, companies like Lockheed, Northrop Grumman, Raytheon and the like. That's, That's part of the whole game. And we have to remember there is Every bit as much a revolving door between the media and the military industrial complex as there is between the Pentagon and the military industrial complex.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We were who were we talking about yesterday? Ken um Delanian? Who's who you talking yes, about? Yes, Ken yeah. Delanian. Yeah.
1: From NBC News.
0: Sort of a so adjacent there. Uh, Mark, I want to go uh, f- further afield for the last couple of topics I want to hit with you. Uh, we learned yesterday the FBI is investigating the killing of Palestinian-American journalist Sharina Abu Akhla uh, and that Israel is mad about it, at least according to Israeli Defense Minister Benny Gantz, who called the DOJ move a grave mistake and said the IDF had already investigated itself very thoroughly. Thank you very much. Uh, the Akla family has called the move an important step. I, I wonder where you think expectations sh- should be set for this, especially since, you know, we did get uh, a big report finding MBS responsible for the murder and dismemberment of Jamal Khashoggi in a, a consulate in Turkey and uh, seems to be just fine. So uh, what do, you, what do yeah. you expect from this?
2: You, you stole my thunder there. Yeah, and that is exactly another U.S. ally. In fact, the other pillar of U.S. hegemony in the Middle East uh, had their 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 um, shall we say the operatives of the Crown Prince investigated and and uh, it was determined that oh oh yeah this um, uh, former uh, Saudi intelligence operative now a quote. Unquote journalist uh, for the Washington Post and and an American and citizen as well was was brutally murdered and what was the ultimate um, cost of that? Some rhetoric from Biden on the campaign and that's about it. Um, I mean that's that's literally what it amounted to and it has actually worshipped Saudi U.S. relationships, but more from the aggrieved, petulant Saudi side uh mm-hmm. that, although they have some other real grievances uh but um i don't expect anything from this investigation uh let let's be let's yeah. be clear one of the most powerful uh political forces uh in washington is the israeli lobby um and um there might be some tokenism here uh that that you know the fbi is conducting an investigation but even if they come back with a result that says the israeli military directly targeted and killed this journalist yes she's american citizen and journalist but let's be fair uh the american government doesn't care because she was pro-palestinian um and i i don't even if the report comes back with with something damning that i don't expect then 100 percent sure there will be no consequences for israel or the israeli military the idf for targeting this journalist because let's be frank the u.s has targeted journalists in iraq and elsewhere before too um and uh it's not like the u.s was held themselves to account i certainly don't see them holding israel to account either
0: I wanted to ask just one last question about this sort of fiasco uh, about the report that Iran is going to execute 15,000 prisoners for taking part in protests over the last couple of months. Seems like maybe this came out of a letter that was signed by the majority of members of the Iranian parliament (laughs) calling for the death penalty, but they don't sentence people. Uh, The courts do um but this i mean even uh uh Justin Trudeau the Canadian prime minister tweeted something about you know very, you know he's very disappointed in iran for for maybe executing 15,000 people and i mean you know uh, it, it is true iran on sunday handed down a death sentence for for one um person who's arrested in connection with these protests and long prison sentences for others those sentences can be appealed i feel like there's probably something to be understood from this whole saga that has to do with the level of ignorance that is maintained especially in in the United States about our official enemies such that you know even the likes of the person who runs Justin Trudeau's Twitter account could be could be suckered into this and I, I thought maybe that was a like that's the interesting part of this story is you know the level of the level of ignorance maintained in the United States about Iran, about North Korea about Russia to some extent, uh, really? China, yeah, Syria, China, Libya, S- Iraq, yeah, I mean, yeah
2: Cuba, it seems Venezuela. I mean, yeah, you, you could go down the list. I mean, this is the way it's done. I mean, and and clearly you're spouting Moolah propaganda because, right? I mean, I heard on social media that that the Iranians already executed like fifteen million protesters, right? right? And they were all pregnant women or, or uh, kitty cats or something, um. Yeah. um, I mean, this is just standard disinformation. Of course, the fact that Trudeau was uh, uh, himself repeating it um, takes it to a a whole new level. Um, There have been a handful of death sentences handed out, um, and most of those involved arson and the murder, including that chopping up of Iranian police officers that has been involved. I know in the Western media, this is all presented as this is the Iranian women throwing off their scarves and so on. And there's no question that there's a small amount. There's amount of that. But it is also clear that the mujahideen e kalk The cult and terror – formerly recognized as a terrorist organization – was involved, and uh, a a large number of its militants uh, were involved in in the violence against the police and and so forth. Monarchists, militant Kurdish – it it seems that the US basically created a grab bag of all of the little um, minority – uh rebellious groups in iran that they have their hands in and activated them all at the same time i presume that this was a uh, part of punishment to iran for providing the drone design uh, to russia uh, during this conflict uh, because the u.s was quite vocal that there would be consequences for that uh, but i see them as kind of Um, shall we say, uh, blowing everything they had on this demonstration uh, to very little effect other than a lot of uh, press, uh, certainly nothing that is going to destabilize the government or or Iran in the long term. And it's not to say that there wasn't genuine protest and settlement and that there aren't um, uh, women uh, and others out there protesting that want a change of the government and want freedom. But as always, the U.S., uh, you know, finds these uh, political, religious, ethnic uh, issues and exploits them and exploits the people as tools of U.S. foreign policy. And to have these, you know, liberal women throwing off the scarves, marching with monarchists and the bloody Mujahideen al-Khalk and militant Kurdish, um, I don't think it really does their cause much justice But, of course, the fact that that isn't not being reported at all in the Western media, you know, um, is it perhaps overrides all of that. And propaganda rules the day, at least outside of Iran.
0: It's a great place to end it there. That was Mark Sloboda, international affairs and security analyst. Mark, thanks as always for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're going to slide straight into a conversation about this very messy Border Patrol exit and uh, immigration in the midterms and in the future.
1: Indeed, the Biden administration at the end of last week, actually, it was it was more on Saturday the way it played out than it was on Friday, uh, told the commissioner of U.S. Customs and Border Protection to either resign or be fired. He chose, of course, to resign. Chris Magnus had initially refused to resign after Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas said he wanted Magnus out. Magnus is a former police chief with more than 40 years of law enforcement experience, but he's only been on the job for just sort of 11 months. So why throw him out? According to colleagues, superiors, and White House officials, Magnus was unengaged in his job. He often didn't even bother to attend White House meetings on the situation on the border. He badmouthed other agencies to colleagues and to his superiors, and he had not built relationships within CPB CBP, I always do that, and across other agencies to address the influx of migrants at the border. These insiders complained that he was unfamiliar with some of the operations at CBP, and instead of focusing Primarily on on the border, he was focused primarily on trying to reform the culture at the Border Patrol. Some of the officials believed Magnus hadn't prioritized prioritized addressing the high number of migrants attempting to cross the border, but instead had continually tried to shift blame to other agencies. And in the meantime, that inaction led to Republican complaints about President Biden's overall border policies. We're going to talk about this with community organizer, immigration activist, and the founder of La Resistencia, Maru Mora Viapando. Welcome back, Maru. Thank you. Good to have you. I want to begin by getting your thoughts on Chris Magnus. Back in December, when he was being considered by the Senate for confirmation, he barely made it through. He's been known to fall asleep in important meetings, which he blames on medication that he takes for multiple sclerosis. He fights with his colleagues and he simply had no background in immigration. It appears that his nomination was a mistake for the Democrats from the beginning. Why was he chosen in the first place for this job? And what kind of nominee would you expect to see replace him?
3: I think the Biden administration attempted something that had never been done, which was to bring people from outside the agency to lead the agency. If we look at uh, Obama, or you know, when the agency was built uh, under the Bush administration, it was always insiders. There was people within the agency, and, and I think it's important to start. What is the culture of the Border Patrol? In their culture, I think the best way to explain it is the example of uh, when Trump uh, became the Republican nominee uh, for the presidential election. These agencies' union. Endorse him and this agency had never endorsed a presidential candidate i think that tells you the kind of agency customs and border patrol are and so when you have somebody that is not from that agency coming in to lead there will be a lot a lot of resistance also the cdp um leadership at some point in a meeting with mallorca deputy uh, the the director of uh, homeland security when he began on their, uh, precisely Biden, taking care of common Security, the agency in a meeting, um, some of them stand up and left, uh, uh, being, uh, expressing their disappointment with the, having Mallorca's leading common Security. And in, in Mallorca's is an outsider. Uh, this guy was an outsider. Let me tell you, Immigration Customs Enforcement right now doesn't have a director. Right. The director was also an outsider, and he left and we know that uh, also some uh, senior executives at Homeland Security have also left. I think this is just an example of how toxic these entire agencies are, how the culture is so embedded in um, racism, homophobia, and, and xenophobia, and, and you know, m- many other things. But I'm not surprised that this person ended up leaving. I was surprised that the Biden administration asked him to leave. I think that's the question.
1: I think you're right. And do you see, do you see, first of all, that atmosphere changing in any way? Can it even change with the, with the appointment of a new director? And do you see the Biden administration going back to the old way and choosing some internal figure for this position?
3: I, I, I think the agency might run without uh, a director for a while. Uh, Like, again, we have seen ICE. It's been a while now. I think it was in January that the director left, and we have not heard about anybody yeah. um, being even considered to run the agency. So it's very likely, if we look at uh, the example of ICE, that CBP might end up with no director for a while. And I think that what the Biden administration is doing is what Democrats usually do. They just respond to Republican pressure. And in this case, I think the Biden administration will just respond to the, the pressure from within these agencies to bring people they want uh, versus what Biden wants. And so I don't think there's a a, a way we can reform any of these agencies. Like I said, it's a very deep culture of uh, racism and xenophobia. And they react, you know, they they have reacted publicly and probably also (laughs) privately to having leaders that don't meet their standards, which is let us do whatever we want and we can have free reign and no accountability whatsoever.
1: Maru, Magnus said, I believe, disingenuously yesterday that he was forced out for asking too many questions about sensitive topics. That's ridiculous. But Homeland Security officials said that he just wasn't interested in in the whole issue of immigration. He was not involved in policy making around immigration policy. And on the rare occasions that he had meetings with Secretary Mayorkas, he took that time to complain about his ICE counterparts. How do the White House and DHS repair the damage that he did in 11 months?
3: I, you know, I'm not a fan of uh, police <laughs> at any level. Nor am I. <laughs> uh, at all. <laughs> but I believe that maybe this guy had honestly wanted to cleanse the culture and that was not seen as something that they should do, that he was hired to do. I think that the damage has been done before him. The organization, it's already set up to, like I said, to run free reign. I think that uh, we can see, for example, what happened with the Haitians at the border being whipped uh, rec- recently with the Venezuelans, right? Being uh, sprayed with paper bo- uh, pepper balls. Um, and so this very clear, brutal violence against uh, immigrants of colors by C B P was not um, met with accountability. And I can see these agents saying we can do this and nobody should come and tell us what to do. Having this director trying to say, no, we how can we solve the problem of the border? According to them, there's a problem. Mm-hmm. If we have already a problem within the same agency with no accountability whatsoever. And also, you know, I think that the Biden administration has allowed for um, these um information about the numbers of of encounters because it's different to say there's been a, a number of arrests versus a number of encounters. A number of encounters at the border could be repetitive. People that keep trying to come in because they tried first and they were denied, and so now they try another route, which would be the route of um, not um, not asking for a permit. Right? It could be just I'm just gonna cross the border on my own. Um, and so I think that the damage is already it's it's there, and I think this guy uh, is being used as a as a scapegoat right now to excuse all the problems that we've seen in in, in Border Patrol.
1: I want to ask you what you think specifically needs to be done now at CBP. How do you see policy changing there? And and what I'm trying to get at, really, is it's unclear whether the Biden administration has an immigration policy that is in any meaningful way different from the Trump administration's policy. Are the likes of the CBP commissioner and the ICE commissioner, when there is one, to advise the Homeland Security Secretary in the White House on policy? Or is it to act just as a a pseudo-law enforcement organization and carry out the instructions that they're given?
3: What we heard throughout the years uh, with ICE and CBP and through the many different administrations now is that they say they only execute the law and it's up to Congress to fix it. They even acknowledge there's a huge problem how the, the law is being built. Uh, but saying that, we have the example of so many uh, attempts by, for example, Obama, by Biden, by Mallorca's, um, even with executive orders or, or with uh, memos sent to ICE and CBP that are not followed. Um, and they, the CBP and ICE are waiting for, you know, states like Texas to challenge them. And so we, we we know that, again, uh, Mallorca uh, issued this memo last year saying we're changing the priorities of detention. We should consider all elements about a person before we decide this is a priority for deportation, uh, detention and deportation. And they say, no. <laughs> we submitted so many times um, asks to review cases, and within 48 hours, they would tell us no. And I'm telling you, these are petitions that we submitted over 100 pages, so 200 pages. How do you read them in less than 48 hours, So, especially being such a bureaucratic agency? And so for us, it's going to be very clear that CBP and ICE will continue doing their thing, uh, you know, excusing their actions behind the fact that Congress doesn't act. And uh, again, Biden and, and the Democrats for many years, they just react to Republican pressure. They want to also seem tough on immigration uh, and that's why we're stuck and with absolutely nothing moving at federal level in Congress.
1: So you, you don't expect any major changes coming out of either this divided Congress or or the White House?
3: No, especially if the House is uh, ends up, end up being a little bit on the Republican side. When we had both Democrats um, on both sides, with a little bit of majority, we didn't have anything. No. <laughs> now we might not even i mean we're we're back at the same point and and let's remember this is this is always a huge issue because we are used as the scapegoats, but it is not a big issue at the time when you need to really run policy because majority of people that would benefit from that are not voters. they are not they're undocumented, right. And so that's why it's the easiest and weakest community to play uh, with, uh, like we were, uh, you know, football in the political arena.
1: I'd love to hear your thoughts about 2024 and beyond. I agree with you, first of all, strongly, that this Congress will do literally nothing on immigration. The White House will do literally nothing because it knows that it can't get anything passed in whatever this, this next Congress ends up looking like. So, question number one, then, is do you believe immigration will be a major national issue in the 2024 election? And how do you see immigration policy changing uh, once we get to
3: 2024? Yeah, I think it will be another big issue because, again, it's always used by by the Republicans. Right. And we saw it this midterms, right? Uh, in my state in Washington, uh, Senator Patty Murray, a uh, senior Senator was accused of opening the borders, which right. is so funny because he had nothing to do with borders in general. Um, and and um, her, her Republican um, counterpart that was running for for, for the seat uh, got really a lot of votes. It was a narrow victory for for Murray. Yes. So uh, Republicans will use that. But yeah. It, yeah. I mean, at least I'm, I'm I'm happy that the Republican candidate didn't win. Um, but we're coming back to the point that Republicans, you know, it's so predictable. Policy in regards to immigration in, in the U.S. is so predictable. Republicans will say that we are the, the, the root cause of all the illness in the United States. Democrats will say that they will be tough on immigration and that only a few deserve to be in the United States. And, um, and then beyond that, there might be try a little bit, bit of a fix for DACA, for the dreamers. The, um, because, you know, right now in the courts, it's still up in the air. So they might want to do just something for the dreamers because yeah. that's popular, right? The young people. Right. But beyond that, I think we're going to go another 20 years still fighting the same fight.
1: We're going to leave it there. That was the voice of Maru Mora Villapando. She is a community organizer, immigrant activist, and the founder of La Resistencia. You're listening to Political Misfits right here on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We're going to take a short break and come back with our second hour.
0: Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I am here with John Kiriaku. We are going to talk about what, if anything, has come out of the COP27 in the UN um, Climate Change Conference this year. But before we get to that, uh, John, I want to tell you something that I've just learned. It's extremely important. Did you know? Did you know? That a full-grown bear can probably fit through a doggy door.
1: <gasps> no. This
0: is what I've learned from— My
1: sister had a bear in her backyard day before yesterday. It's the first time she's seen one.
0: This is what I've learned. Listen, if this is wrong, you can blame the Georgia Department of Wildlife, but they oh, have boy. just been tweeting about how bears, if their heads can fit through, their bodies can fit through because they don't have collarbones the same way
1: oh, right. we do.
0: Right. So if you have a dog door and you live in a bear area, you know, you don't want a bear coming in to to make a den in your house. Good. That's a thing that I've just learned. That was very exciting to me.
1: Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Impressive. Yep.
0: Uh, so yeah, then they linked to an organization uh, telling you how to avoid having bears come and try and live in your house. Can you imagine? Can you imagine seeing a black bear coming through your dog door?
1: <laughs> that would scare the daylights out of me. Yeah, I, mean, I would I hope that the bear would be more afraid of me, as they say. But yeah, that would be tough.
0: Yeah, probably most bears would be, but the kind of bear is going to come through your doggy door. <laughs> not not sure if they're the kind that's going to be really scared uh, about what's on the other side. I also have. I, we are going to talk politics a little bit later, but I did want to get your reaction. To this headline, it's a an opinion piece in the Washington Post by Max Boot. Yes. So setting, expectations I have strongly there.
1: held feelings about Max Boot.
0: What do you think of the opinion? Republicans lost the election, and so did Putin, MBS, and Netanyahu.
1: Uh, no, that's silly.
0: Yeah, that's that's what I thought. But
1: that but that's a very Max Boot thing to say.
0: Yes, exactly. Because it, I don't understand. There is this real tendency to pretend. That f- there's a marked difference in foreign policy uh, between the two parties. Yes. When it comes to, uh, well, when it comes to, let's say, our our imperial ambitions. I mean, sure. Right. I think there's a difference between the two parties in terms of, like, are you going to fund contraception uh, sure. on the African continent or whatever? Right. right. Like, if you sure. have insane, insane uh, Christian conservatives in power, I think uh, things like healthcare funding and whatever suffer. Of course, Trump, you know, cut funding for. Uh, Palestinian refugee camps yep. and the like, uh, which I happen to recall also the the UN Refugee Council is, is begging for money mm-hmm. once again, saying mm-hmm. they've basically run out and they've spent a ton of it on Ukrainian refugees and they need more for Gaza and right. for all the permanent refugee camps established in Palestine. But um, yeah, the idea that, uh, I mean, we have seen what it means for Joe Biden to get tough on MBS, you know? Is that a loss? Has that been a loss for Saudi Arabia? No, not at all. Netanyahu.
1: Yes, please.
0: It's like, yeah, the way the Biden administration treats him is a loss. I mean, look.
1: Yeah. Has the Biden administration announced that that we're moving the embassy back to Tel Aviv from Jerusalem? Of course not
0: have not have not seen that. Yet. Can you talk about, you know, scaling
1: back military and other aid to Israel? Absolutely not.
0: And you know what, if if this FBI if this FBI investigation into the killing of Shirina Abu Akla actually turns up something a, an honest report with some real consequences, mm-hmm. like imposing the kind of uh sanctions that we are supposed to impose on countries that do things like deliberately target right. journalists and murder them, mm-hmm. I will be very happy to eat my words. Sure. But I But it's not going to happen. Not going to hold my breath. No. It's not going to happen. It's so hard to see how it's a it's a loss there. I'm sure if you if you want to go here and uh, see him explain it, you can find that column. I just saw. Come on, that's got to be one of the dumbest things. Totally in agree. Print yesterday. Anyway, let's get back to cop. Uh it's a it's a conference that I I think it's getting a lot less attention than last years. It could just be that we are paying less attention to it. Uh, but there are still, you know, Im- important questions on the table, important uh, issues of funding and also the possibility of countries that uh you know, Have environmental resources that are of global significance, finding a way to band together to make the, uh, you know, to throw their weight around a little bit. That to me seems promising. So we'll get into what has been coming out of that conference and what hasn't been with Anthony Rogers Wright. He's the director of environmental justice at New York Lawyers for the Public Interest. Anthony, thanks for joining us.
4: Thanks so much for having me. I just want to apologize in advance. The background noise, is Egypt yeah. um, at night, and um, it's very loud. So I apologize. But we'll, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, we appreciate talking to someone who is on the ground there. So, like, do, do you think this is this year's uh, climate change conference getting less attention than last year, and does it does it deserve more?
4: I, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think that um, you know we had this uh, pinnacle moment right in uh, COP twenty one, which was place in Paris, um, uh, twenty fifteen. And, and and that was an Obama was president. He was more likable, right? Um, more photogenic, I guess. Um, than the current president. And 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 these these uh, um, countries came together and said, "Okay, we're making this agreement to drastically reduce our emissions. We're going to take the climate crisis seriously." Keeping in mind that during COP twenty one in Paris was the same time that the United States uh, made a deal. To uh, well the the uh, legislative branch made a deal to lift the to um, lift the crude oil export ban so so that was interesting, but I, I think that in in successive years it's just that nothing of consequences actually come out right We just heard that our emissions globally have gone up precipitously in 2022. So people are kind of like looking at this for what it is, a bunch of people coming together, and it's really great. I I want want to be clear, it's been great to network um, with a lot of the African activists and a lot of the uh, grassroots environmental justice activists who, who come out of Africa. But in terms of getting the UN and especially the most polluting nations, being the United States, European Union, and China, um, and, and to some extent, India, to really come together and make an agreement, I, I think people, it's it, it just become nubs, right? It, you know, they yeah. know the conference going to happen. There'll be a few news reports. I, you know, and, and case in point, probably the uh, report that it has gotten the most coverage and, and the most reads had to do with four indigenous protesters who, during Biden's speech last Friday, Held up a sign that said people versus fossil fuels, they were kicked out of the conference mm-hmm. and had their credentials revoked. That, that's been the story that's been read the most because it, it, it was the only thing of consequence. But yeah. I, I, yeah, I, 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 I understand why in successive years people have been reporting it on, on, on it less because even Biden's speech was very soporific, right? It, mm-hmm. it, it was pretty terrible. And, and 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 they know what what it really is. It's it's just a bunch of rhetoric that's not going to lead to actual global um, reduction in emissions.
0: Yeah. Uh, the there's been also a lot of conversation about funding, right, about about who's going to pay for climate adaptation and for paying for loss and damages to less developed nations that are suffering as a result of the industrialization of more developed nations. And there's been concern today that the draft declaration is walking back language from last year's declaration that it, last year developed country parties were urged to at least double their provision of climate finance for adaptation to developing countries. Uh, Now they're being urged to consider doubling that adaptation finance. This is while it seems clear that this hundred billion that was pledged to be delivered by rich countries to poor by 2020, then it was 2023. Now uh, maybe everyone's just going to forget about that promise. And so, you know, what, What is the state of conversation about funding? Have, you know, has there been any progress? Are there any uh, commitments that seem any more likely to be honored when it comes to, you know, these developed nations actually paying loss and damages or paying for climate mitigation uh, measures to less developed ones?
4: Yeah, I I think, um, you know, by Friday when we will see this uh, finalized agreement, when uh, the diplomats in various uh, countries, especially developing ones, um, come together and say, okay, this is what we can live with. We're not going to see anything close to that $100 billion um, that, that was uh, promised um, in, in Paris in, in, in COP21. So, um, you know, the United States is here uh, really promoting the fact that they have pledged $11.4 billion. Um, but what they really came here to do was to also push market-based solutions. They literally, uh, John Kerry, of course, the uh, special envoy for climate to the president, is, is here trying to promote... Carbon markets in in Africa, a, a continent that of course is responsible for the least amount of emissions emissions mm-hmm. aggregate mm-hmm. as a continent. You know, and, and 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 what was really ironic was he announced that while he was on stage with the Bezos Earth Fund, which of course um, was funded by uh, Jeff Bezos and the Rockefeller Foundation. Yes. And I asked John Kerry, you know, like if Amazon actually paid their taxes. That would be about $8.5 billion a year. Um, so we could probably up that to closer to $20 billion if, you know, we, we made them pay their taxes rather than putting their foundation, which helped them dodge taxes even more, um, here to be sort of like global leaders. So I, I don't think so. Um, I think that develop, developing nations are going to walk away from here understanding we're going to have to do this ourselves. I really like the point that you made about them coming together and saying, hey, you know what? The critical resources that are needed for electrification, for solarization, and, and for, for, for wind turbines and battery storage, we have them, right? This, mm-hmm. The that has the Democratic Republic of Congo. We already heard from the, um, a, the equivalent of the ETA administrator from Colombia say we're forming an Amazon block in South America, which is, of course, more possible Mm -hmm. with the um, um, uh, election of of Lula, who will be speaking tomorrow. So we'll be very, very interested to hear what what he has to say. But it does look like what you're going to start seeing is um, developing nations coming together, forming blocks and saying, "Okay, if you're not going to uh, uh, pay us what you owe us for all the damage that you've caused. You're definitely going to pay us if you want to get these critical minerals into your country.
0: And, you know, to that extent, you know, if, if that is the the only way that this <clears throat> any of these efforts move forward, you know, if, if what COP is primarily good for is um, networking and making connections, then that would seem to be really positive. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about where where you have seen leadership, where you have seen uh, uh, positive momentum and uh, a little more about, you know, what, what you think the near term possibilities are for some of these countries, like you mentioned Colombia and the Amazon block. Uh, there's also been reports about this idea of the OPEC of rainforests. That would be Brazil, yeah. Indonesia and Congo DRC. You know, do, do you think that COP actually, you know, has some value in facilitating that kind of networking? And what would you Expect to see in the near term.
4: Yeah, that's, I, I love that question. So this year um, was the inaugural um, Climate Justice Pavilion, which um, is um, being uh, run by um, the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice, based in, in Louisiana, by the great Dr. Beverly Wright. We Act for Environmental Justice, which is led by Peggy Shepard and then Bob Bullard, a uh, Dr. Bob Bullard, who many uh, refer to as the, the Godfather of the environmental justice movement in the United States. And the panels that they've had have just been electric. Um, they've, they've brought together indigenous people from all around the world, in, in, including Africa, feminists from all around the world, in, in, including Africa, talking about what alternative systems must and can look like. And so that, that has been a, a really, really positive development because, you know, after these panels, many of the panelists stick around speaking to people from various um, uh, nations around the world, and just exchanging ideas. I had the great opportunity to speak with a young woman from Malaysia who has a whole, you know, uh, approach to how we can get rid of plastic. You know, mentioning, for instance, that Kenya has a single use plastic bandbag and how we can expand that, you know, throughout the world. So that, that both have been really positive development. And maybe, you know, to your point, that, that's been the best part, is that we know that we can't depend... On the diplomats and the nation states, or most of the nation states themselves, to um, engender the transformation in, econ- in economic systems and in social systems that are necessary to avert and avoid the worst cases of the climate crisis. So activists from around the world are saying, hey, you know what? We're going to have to do this together and we're going to have to figure this out together. Another amazing group that's here is a uh, movement for Black Lives, Black Hive, which has brought together people. From, from the entire continent of Africa, from Caribbean nations, and of course um, other people in the African diaspora from the United States um, coming together as well and just having a whole slew of, of amazing, amazing meetings with students from all around the world talking about what a global diaspora climate justice project can actually look like. And those have been extremely encouraging. So I, I would say again that people are starting to realize we're, we're coming here to network. You know, we've We've had a few meetings with, some of our leadership from the State Department. Um, we've had uh, discussions with Democratic leaders here, and we walk out of those meetings, you know, uh, understanding that, okay, that was to make them look good. They got their photo ops with the black and brown climate up as but when they get back home, especially when, you know, right now we're talking about things like permitting reform in the United States, what's really going to happen is, is nothing. And even uh, today we, we had the opportunity to meet with members of uh, uh, Senator's consumer team Really, you know, to talk about loss and damage, I'm embarrassed to say that one of, of, of a set of receiver staffers didn't even understand what the concept actually meant. Whoa. It was just like, wow, right? It, it's just rhetorical to you. And, and clearly you came here extemporaneously and, and you should have just seen the look of the, in, in the faces of people in the room. I'm just like, this is the, the, the Senate majority here. Wow. Um, one, of, one of his uh, climate advisors who doesn't understand this this topic. So it, 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 it goes back to the fact that there are too, still too many people that are looking to the U.S. to lead, but the U.S. is absolutely leading from behind. when we're sending people here who don't even understand the concept of what loss and damage means and why it is absolutely necessary for the U.S. to be leading in that as uh, the, the biggest emitter per capita in the world.
0: Yeah, that is an outrage. Wow. But, I mean, I am glad to hear that, it, the you know, the it, it is providing the opportunity for me- people to make connections that they might not, not otherwise have been able to make. And then maybe, you know, this collaboration leads to greater collaboration that leads to, you know, the formation of blocks that can actually kind of cha- challenge the United States and, and Western powers and, and push them toward commitments because there is actually something to, uh, to threaten to withhold. That was Anthony Rogers-White. Anthony, really appreciate you joining us. Do you want to tell our listeners uh, where they can go to find more about the work of New York lawyers for the public interest?
4: Yes, um, nylpi.org. Um, we're doing amazing work with our environmental justice partners all throughout New York State including um, trying to uh, properly and equitably implement the nation's most aggressive climate law, that, uh, climate leadership community, Act. so that's NYLPI.org. And I really appreciate this opportunity, and I look forward to talking to y'all again soon.
0: Yeah, that would be terrific. All right, thanks so much for joining us, Anthony. We really, really appreciate it. We're going to take a quick break here and come back with some politics. Yeah. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back.
1: Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou here in the studio with Michelle Witty. We have a lot of political news to update you on. House Republicans will caucus today to choose their leader, who would be Speaker of the House, presumably. Today?
0: Today. I didn't know it was happening so fast. It wasn't supposed to. Okay. It was
1: supposed to happen next week. Right. Because there are still like nine seats that haven't been decided mm-hmm. yet. But they're going to go forward Today. The reason they're doing this is that Kevin McCarthy knows that the more time that passes, the less support he's going to have. So he's trying to get people on the record quickly to do it now. So the conventional wisdom is that McCarthy's going to win the most number of votes. But that doesn't really matter in the long run because it doesn't matter how many votes you have. If you don't get to 218, you're not the speaker. He's not anywhere near 218. So So
0: he's undertaking this vote early because this is his best chance, but he still doesn't have a chance. So he's just setting, setting himself up to look weak.
1: Yeah. What he's trying to do, not necessarily what he's trying to do is to set himself up so that those who are opposed to him look weaker than he is right now. There's a guy named Andy Biggs, From Arizona, far right wing congressman, one of the founding members of the Tea Party caucus or the Freedom Caucus, they call themselves Mm -hmm. now. Andy Biggs jumped into this race yesterday. Okay. Okay. 24 hours is not enough time to shore up your support, especially if you think you're going to be a legitimate challenger to the guy who has led the Republican Party for the last, what, or the Republican Party in the House for the last six years or so, eight years. (laughs) Excuse me. So he's going to go head to head with Andy Biggs. Somebody or either one of them, they they hope they're going to get to 218. They're not going to get to 218. It's possible then it's probable that the vote will have to go to a second round. And the reason why I'm sort of stumbling over this is that this has not happened in our lifetime. Right. Mm-hmm. This is just not something that takes place on a normal basis when uh, every two years the Democratic and Republican caucuses the House of Representatives choose their leadership. So I'm going to speculate here. I'm going to say that that McCarthy ends up with somewhere around 205 votes. That's 13 short of the 218 necessary to become speaker. Biggs will likely drop out. But if the Republicans don't coalesce around either McCarthy or an alternative, then other people can jump in. Now, there's a funny rule uh, for the House of Representatives. You do not have to be a member of the House of Representatives to be the Speaker of the House.
0: Okay, yes.
1: Right? Yep. So there are these rumblings that some far-right Republicans are going to ask Donald Trump to stand as as Speaker of the House. That's not going to happen. Uh, that would be silly.
0: It'd be anyway. work. Yeah. It'd be more It'd be work. work. More work than being president. God, having to get people, you know, having to get people on board with things. I will say that in the last two days, things
1: have gotten incrementally better for Kevin McCarthy. Our producer, Ben, uh, tells me right now that Jim Jordan, the the far right uh, uh, representative from central Ohio, has announced that he's going to support McCarthy yesterday Marjorie Taylor Green announced that she would support McCarthy. A lot of people were surprised by that, including me to tell you the truth um, but my my guess is that the next Speaker of the House is not going to be a name that we've been talking about over the last week or so. It's going to be some alternative candidate now I'm going to repeat what a member of the Republican National Committee said uh, a member of the Republican National Committee who used to be. Um, who used to be a member of the House Republican leadership staff. He said this never would have happened to John Boehner because Boehner was tough and mean. Actually, my ex-father-in-law is his physician, okay. and he can attest to that. He's tough and he's mean. Okay. <laughs>
0: um,
1: Cincinnati, Ohio.
0: Wasn't he known for crying also?
1: Cried a lot. Yeah. Yeah, he okay, cried I'm a lot. I think it all go together. Chain smoker, chronic drinker. Sounds like maybe... The youngest of nine children. Really yeah. fun to be around. Yeah, I think yeah, I would actually enjoy his company. Paul Ryan, mm-hmm. who replaced Boehner, um, this would never happen to him, this RNC member said, because because Ryan was the nicest guy in the world. And Ryan could bring people to consensus.
0: The nicest guy in the world is going to tell teachers that if you get a $2 extra in your paycheck, like it's going to really help you. Remember that? Do you remember the tax cut where he was like, look, they're getting an extra $15 a month. And
1: to prove his point, he showed a letter from a teacher thanking him for the $2 because $2 times 12 is $24. $24. And that's almost enough to join Costco. Right.
0: (laughs) No, I mean, come on. (laughs) These people are so out of touch.
1: Their complaint is that McCarthy is weak and McCarthy is not very bright. And so, you know, if I had to bet money, I'd say it's not going to be McCarthy. But that's just me. That'll be interesting. Republicans in the Senate will hold their leadership vote tomorrow. This has been interesting, too. Minority leader Mitch McConnell is expected to win easily. Four prominent Republicans have come out against him, including... Florida Senators Senators Rick Scott and Marco Rubio, Texas Senator Ted Cruz, and Missouri Senator Josh Hawley. South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham is his mealy-mouthed normal self. He criticizes McConnell, but he doesn't want to really take a public position. Talk about weak. Um, The bottom line is...
0: Also, honestly, maybe helps... Helped wreck the Republican yeah. midterms with his comments about a national abortion ban. Absolutely right.
1: And and Rick Scott, same thing. People have already forgotten that as recently as seven days ago, Rick Scott was the chairman of the Republican Senatorial Campaign yeah. Committee, and not only could he not win back the Senate, he lost a Senate seat in a in a midterm that historically favors the out of the power party. And now he wants promoted. Yeah. Based on that record. Yeah. Come on. Um, the truth is nobody's running against McConnell. He's running unopposed. Everybody's talking about it. Well, oh, I don't like him. I want somebody else. Okay, well, who do you want? Well, somebody that's not Mitch McConnell. Okay, the vote's tomorrow. You lose.
0: <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> I don't know why that makes me laugh. <laughs> I mean, McConnell. McConnell has been pretty effective, right? Mitch yeah. McConnell has been pretty. It really has been hard to. Very really, much so. Yeah. I mean, I don't like what he has affected, but he's done it. I agree. Yeah. I agree. I don't like McConnell.
1: I don't respect Re- uh, McConnell as a person. Yeah. But while wow, the guy is a political master, a master. So that's two things. Arizona had its governor's race finally decided last night. Secretary of State Katie Hobbs was declared the winner over former TV anchor uh, uh, Carrie Lake. Lake has been saying for days that the race was being stolen from her. Of course, she offered no proof. Nobody is taking her seriously. And although she said yesterday that she will attack, I loved this, she's going to attack the Democrats for the next eight years, <laughs> implying already that Hobbs is going to win re-election in four years.
0: Okay, great. Cool. Um, <laughs> that's the winner for you.
1: Nobody's paying any attention to her. She
0: doesn't seem like, is there a formal challenge or anything underway? No. You know, no, yeah. No. No. I don't, Nothing I, like that. Yeah.
1: No. She got into a Twitter fight today with Liz Cheney that just made me guffaw, right? So Liz Cheney um, has been uh, uh, not necessarily campaigning against her so much as speaking out against her. And then um, Carrie Lake tweeted, enjoy your forced retirement, Liz. Yeah. And then Cheney said, you enjoy your forced retirement too. So cat fight. Uh, former President Trump, we said earlier today, is expected this evening to announce his candidacy for the 2024 Republican nomination Yeah, for but president.
0: let's talk about what's really exciting, which is Mike Pence giving prayerful consideration to a 2024 presidential he's bid. He's praying on it. Man. Should we lift up our hands like this? Just him praying on it is the only thing that's more boring than Pence 2024, oh my honestly. I mean, and Pence is also, for, again, he's a bad guy. He's a bad guy with bad beliefs. Oh, yeah. yeah. The fact that he manages to be so dull probably is a great victory for him, actually, I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So, Trump, going to announce tonight.
1: The reason he's going to announce tonight is because Pence's book comes out tonight.
0: I love that. I love that.
1: uh, (laughs) And Trump is just trying to screw him out of book sales.
0: Donald Trump is the Taylor Swift to Like Pence's Katy Perry. Very funny. I'm proud to say that
1: my first book outsold um, every. Trump administration memoir, but one. Hmm. Uh, what, what's her name? McInerney. She sold,
0: McInerney. Yeah, you she, she
1: sold slightly more books than I
0: She sold more did. books than you? Yeah. She was the one? In the first week. Wow. In
1: the first week.
0: And I have honestly, them all beat it just so because, far. Well, I was going to say something. that's probably misogynist. Just to be like, <laughs> oh, is it just a big picture of her on the cover? And people are like, oh, has, I'll buy the hot woman's book. Probably. That's prob- probably that's denigrating probably. her abilities. I bet it's a great book, John. Yeah. Which she probably dictated to to a ghostwriter. I mean, who knows? I'm I'm not surprised because I...
1: (laughs) Great, great, great. So Trump's going to make this big announcement tonight. Now, we've all been led to believe that he's going to announce his candidacy. And today's Washington Post said that he's hired three, like, A-list campaign people. Interestingly enough, there are going to be some changes. There is no campaign manager. Right. Each one of these three is going to head something different in the campaign, but nobody's going to be the actual campaign manager. Trump is going to be the campaign manager. Oh, Huge, oh, hmm. huge mistake. Number one. Yeah. Second.
0: Yeah.
3: The
1: campaign will have no presence in Washington, D.C. It's going to be uh, uh, headquartered somewhere in the Miami area. OK, Th- that's fine. Other other presidential candidates have done that. No big deal. Um, number three. The staff is going to be about a quarter of what it was two years ago. Trump complained all the time that there were so many people on his campaign payroll that he didn't even know what most of them did in the campaign. He said they're not doing that again. And he specifically said he wants to recapture the outsider vibe yep. of the 2016 race. He doesn't want a repeat of 2020. I mean, it
0: also means more of the uh, donations that you get don't go to candidate. Like, uh, yes. go to your staff. They can exactly. go straight into straight to the campaign you want to send. It. Yeah, right. the campaign, which, which is means you. TV
1: advertising. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're exactly right. Now, what I wanted to bring up, and I know I'm running short on time. So with that said, Trump has taken it on the chin for, for the last seven days because of the Republican Party's losses. He deserves to take it on the chin. The Republican allied Club for Growth, you know, Club for Growth, it's this anti-tax, radical anti-tax group headed by Grover Norquist. I like Grover. He's a nice guy. I've spoken to his group a couple of times. He's a nice guy, but he has this irrational hatred of taxes. And, you know, if you want to run a country, you got to tax. Anyway, the Club for Growth released poll results yesterday evening. Get this, showing DeSantis beating Trump in Iowa 48-37. DeSantis beating Trump in New Hampshire, 52-37.
0: Tiny little states with tiny little populations, though. I will say, yes. well, Iowa, big state, not small population.
1: A- and with that said, you're right. Okay. Nationally, Trump is a little bit ahead of DeSantis. But in these key early states, uh, DeSantis leading Trump in Florida, 56-30. to
0: well, because he's in Florida. Exactly. I mean, Florida matters. That's the right? power what of it incumbency. Matters because it's got those big. Uh, it's got that big population. That
1: and Trump and Desantis leading Trump in Georgia, fifty-five to thirty-five. Now these are all double-digit leads over the guy who really should, by all rights, be the front-runner in the race. It's of course very, very early in this race, but it looks at this point like Donald Trump is in trouble. We'll
0: see. I honestly don't bet you a dollar. He doesn't announce his candidacy tonight. You know, he may not uh, just be that would be that would be the funniest thing. Oh, my and God. So yes. maybe that's going to be what happened. No, he probably he probably is going to run again. It's got to be it's embarrassing. I mean, what is the Republican Party going to do? Right. He's going to tr- trying to recreate this outsider campaign, except he's sort of like fighting with DeSantis over who is the real who's the real Firebrand in terms of action and policy because Desantis yeah. certainly beats him with the anti-vax oh, COVID's yeah. a scam crowd, right? Oh, it, so what you, is Desantis the came out
1: smelling like a rose?
0: Yeah, so like what what is the what what is the Trump voter now? If not, you know what I mean? Who's the person who's going to vote for Donald Trump, uh, but also you know b- believes in the vaccine, doesn't believe the yes. COVID is the, the pandemic or whatever? Right, right. But also wants to see that kind of sort, that sort of um, upending of of the apple cart. I don't know who that person is. I mean, I do think Trump is still ahead of DeSantis nationally. Mm-hmm. The media can make, they can make DeSantis if they want. Oh, yeah. And they seem to want to, right? Mm-hmm. They seem at to be focus yeah. on making DeSantis. Oh, look at his wife. Oh, you know, whatever. Um, right. But yeah, I don't, I don't
1: know. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to watch. Yeah big developments well we'll update you all in in the next day or two in the meantime i think we're going to take a short break uh you're listening to political misfits on radio sputnik we will take that short break and come back with our next guest so stay tuned Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou here in the studio with my co-host Michelle Witty. About forty-eight thousand graduate student workers throughout the ten-campus University of California system went on strike yesterday afternoon, calling for better pay and benefits. These forty-eight thousand workers perform much of the system's teaching and research. This is the largest strike of the year in America and the largest strike in education. In all of American history, it includes teaching assistants, postdoctoral scholars, grad student researchers, tutors, and fellows. The action has paralyzed the California State University system, prompting canceled classes, shuttered labs, and other academic disruptions. And the strike is taking place, get this, one week before finals. Oh. <laughs> Interestingly, the United Auto Workers represent some 19,000 of the 48,000 strikers, and other UAW members have announced that they will respect the picket lines, halting deliveries to the system's 10 campuses. The workers are demanding significantly higher pay, child care subsidies, better health care, longer family leave, public transit passes, which frankly, I thought everybody got pretty much. Um, and low, well, we don't, but it, it, everybody in government does and they want, <coughs> excuse me, lowered tuition for international scholars. After a marathon bargaining session over the weekend, the two sides agree on, agreed on three points, and the university system has asked that a federal mediator be brought in to push the process forward. Still, it's too early to discern if this strike will be a short-lived one or a drawn-out action. We're joined by Todd Emenegger. Todd is a rank-and-file member of the United Auto Workers uh, local 2865 and a PhD candidate in UCLA's Department of Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences, and he's working as a teaching assistant. Todd, we're really happy to have you. Thanks for joining us.
5: <laughs> yeah, it's
1: it's great to be on. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for doing this. Let's start with some of these worker demands. The average salary for these highly educated workers is twenty four thousand dollars a year. That's actually less than. The federal minimum wage. That's not true. It's less than the state minimum wage. It's just about at the federal uh, minimum wage. The workers want $54,000 base salaries, which even then wouldn't necessarily give them enough money to pay rent on apartments in many of the cities where these universities are based.
0: You can pay rent in D.C. on that.
1: Yeah, you can't. You can't live on $54,000. The university system might be willing, they said, to do a 7% increase this year, followed by two years at 3% each. Is this the biggest sticking point, or is this a more complicated situation?
5: Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of funny because our professors and our academic advisors will show their support by saying, I know how hard it is to kind of live at a UC on a professor salary. And they're making right. well over six figures. So yeah, and we're making you know less than a quarter of what they make right now. Um, so yeah, the proposal of 54K basically just came from addressing rent burden at the UC campuses. And really, it's kind of a random number, but it's based on the amount needed just by the average UC worker across all the campuses just to be unrent burdened. So just give some context to that. Like right now, 92% of UC grad workers and 61% of the postdoctoral scholars are rent burdened. And of those grad workers around like 40% pay more than half their income on rent. And I mean, a lot of the times they're living in university housing. So the university is paying us and they're taking like more than half of it back in in the form of rent. They're also our landlords. Oh,
1: wow. That's true. That's true. The universities are also your landlords. I didn't even think about (laughs) that. Todd, tell me about the UA, uh, the UAW and other allied unions, what effects do sympathetic actions like respecting picket lines, for example, or refusing to make deliveries have on a strike? What kind of pressure does that help to put on the university system?
5: Yeah, well, really just, I mean, the solidarity that comes more the unions, it's, it's like an amazing feeling. I mean, this is the first, this is the first, I think, to act in strike that the university system has had since like 1999. So really experience it now for my first time. And I'm sure most of the other workers here their first time as well. Um, and, I mean, this has an enormous impact on the duration of the strike. So this gives another university recently, Clark University in Massachusetts, I believe. Um, they went up to, like, 90% wage increases in five days. And they had, like, a 24-hour picket, and they had all the construction on campus shut down. And, yeah, it was amazing. They just had a very short duration with a really high concession strike. Um, so I'm out here on the ticket line um, kind of near some bus terminals, and I talked to some bus drivers. And I'll be like, hey, can you, you know, turn your bus around and cross our picket line? And I'll be like, yeah, of course. And wow. it's really amazing when they when they do that. And you can kind of tell, like, which drivers are more active in the union and which kind of aren't. Because the ones that aren't will be like, oh, you got to call the city. And the ones that are respecting the picket line are just like, yeah, of course, we're not going to cross. And they get it figured out. So um, it makes a giant difference, really, um, especially in terms of the deliveries that we see that really are, kind of supplying like the labs with the research equipment. Um, I mean, they can give them all the equipment they want. There's no one in the labs working right now. So yeah. Right. I don't know right. how much use will be part of it. Yeah.
1: I'll tell you the truth. Both of my grandfathers were members of the United, United Steelworkers Union. My dad was a member of the um, amalgamated meat cutters union when he was in school and a lifetime member of the American Brotherhood of Musicians. My mom was a member of the American Federation of Teachers I was a proud member of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, and I was raised in a house where we never, ever crossed a picket line, ever, for any reason. I never really thought about that much when I was a kid, but then when I became an adult, I realized that there are a lot of Americans out there who will not cross picket lines. And, you know, this is how workers historically have won their rights and won improvements in their in their lives by helping each other through respect for, for picket lines. Um, I think this is, this is kind of dramatic. I I read something in the New York times today that said that support for organized labor is at a 50% uh, sorry, is at a 50 year high. We're seeing unionization efforts at Starbucks across the country. The Starbucks that I go to all the time, just unionized last week. We're seeing it at Apple stores. We're seeing it at Amazon. California is a strongly union state. How much do you think that that helps your cause? Does it put pressure on the university system to settle things more quickly?
5: Yeah, you know, I think it really helps just the fact that we're in California, and it is, I mean, arguably of all 50 states, kind of the most pro-union or pro-labor in a sense. Um, you know, I think really we're part of something historic here, uh, especially in terms of this giant labor wave we're seeing, and that definitely motivates workers to kind of get out and get on the picket line. But, um, I mean, so we have a newer form union, Student Researchers United. We just won recognition. Actually, wow. they're bargaining the first contract right now. Um, you know, we got all the, uh, we won recognition by getting the simple majority of workers to authorize the union. And the university ended up just refusing to recognize the union so that you're not workers, you're students. <laughs> As graduate student researchers taking in grant money, bringing all this money and working on the research to the university, we had politicians from across the state write letters to the UC system. And you know what happened? Uh, mm-hmm. They didn't budge. The university just refused to recognize the union. So we said, okay, we'll have a strike authorization vote. We had a strike authorization vote. We had a super majority of people say yes. The university immediately backed off. They said, okay, you can have your union. And that's the contract we're bargaining for. So, I mean, I want to take California as like a, a very pro-union state, and I would hope that its you know, flagship university system reflects that, but that's not the case at all, and that's not what we're seeing here. And we're seeing all the workers get out of the labs, get out of the classrooms, and just kind of disrupt the university operations, and we're, we're doing it just with high participation. Uh, this is the biggest higher education strike in history, and probably will be <laughs> for a long time.
1: Agreed. The university system says that its offer of a 7% salary increase would put grad workers on the same level as grad workers at places like Harvard and MIT. But one thing the system has not addressed is housing costs. We said this a moment ago. California has some of the highest housing costs in America. And the system's offering annual raises of 7% this year, followed by 3% and 3% the next two years. That's lower than the inflation rate and will set workers back even more than where they are now. Many of these workers pay 50% of their salaries in rent. And as you pointed out, that's rent to the university system. How do you think Mm -hmm. this gets resolved? Is it even part of the negotiations?
5: So this is basically being negotiated in the form of our wages because that's what our 54K numbers is based on for the grad workers. But the university is actually using negotiate raises for thousands of uh, the academic student employees and student researchers by, they just misclassify our wages as student support. So, they're, and that's why this really the striking unfair labor practice because they're dragging their feet and they're refusing really to bargain with us fairly. They'll show up with like 10 minutes left in a bargaining session. Um, at this point, it's just it's just ridiculous. But uh, yeah, another thing that the university is refusing to negotiate on housing uh, with all the units. Um, they base their housing on the market prices of the area. So here in Westwood, for example, the nearest graduate student housing is a place called Wayburn Terrace. And that rent can range anywhere between 1400 and $1,700 a month. And we make about $1,800 a month. Oh, and my. if you want to get parking, I think it's even more. So yeah, there's nothing left over. And then if you're getting food on campus, more money going back to the UC, <laughs> they make sure the money gets back is what I'm saying. And you know, we're just trying to breathe. We're just trying to live. You yeah. know, we just want living wages, and we don't think university housing should be based on speculation at all. We think it should be based on housing the students, you know?
1: That's right. I want to ask you um, about uh, a prediction. Uh, what's yeah. your forecast? The, there are 48,000 people on strike, biggest strike of the year anywhere in America, biggest education strike in American history. The pressure on the university system has to be just crushing. So how do you think this is going to play out? How long do you believe it'll last? And do you think that, that most of the 48,000 um, employees, students, uh, grad workers will end up being um, with, uh, happy with the results?
5: Yeah, so, um, I mean, after the first day yesterday, I've seen, I've seen people so motivated, so inspired by the ticket line and just collective action that I, I mean, I see this going as long as it takes to win something fair. And that's going to be something that the vast majority of our workers approve of. Um, so when we get something we're satisfied with, we'll end the strike. But, I mean, until then, yeah, as you said, you can expect the near 50,000 workers on the ticket line every single day. And, I mean, really... I think we have the power and the the unprecedented amount of participation we have in these demands. I mean, there's never been this amount of organization in higher education. Um, But I mean, once again, ultimately it's just up to the university. um, They're the ones dragging their feet and bargaining with us in bad faith. And they're the ones that need to approach us on the bargaining table because we're not being unreasonable. They're just not showing up to bargaining sessions and they're not meeting us. As you said, seven percent, three percent, three percent. They're not meeting us anywhere near the cost of inflation or you know, addressing the housing crisis going on at every UC campus.
1: Yeah, that's really what it comes down to. Well, we wish you the very best of of luck. We we hope to have you back on. We can talk about the great victory that you guys have won. That was the voice of Todd Emenegger. Todd is a rank-and-file member of the United Auto Workers Union Local 2865, and he's a Ph.D. candidate in UCLA's Department of Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences, working as a teaching assistant. We're going to take another short break. You're listening to Political Misfits. Right here on Radio Sputnik, stay tuned.
0: Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witty here with John Kiriaku with some pretty disturbing reports, if this I'll is true. i tell you, yep. Uh, reports coming in that we, of course, will not be able to do justice to in the 10 minutes we have left, but reports coming in uh, that it seems like a Russian missile intended for Ukraine ended up in Poland and has killed two people. This is just, this is what is being reported. This is, you know, the early moments of this incident, whatever it it was. But Poland has convened a meeting of its security council. And of course, no one is speculating that this was intentional at all. No, no, no. no. Russia has been, um, you know, there there have been attacks on uh, Kiev today, on Kharkiv, and the expectation is that this was a strike on Lviv. But, Close to the border. And if, you know, if if it did land in Poland accidentally or on purpose, I mean, again, uh, accidentally uh, kill people, uh Poland will have to decide, uh, you know, uh, how it wants to respond if, if and NATO will have to decide how it wants yeah, to respond. That's
1: right. Because, you know, uh, technically, this is an attack on a NATO member. And, you know, what the charter says, an attack on one is an attack on all.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It was an accident, apparently. But uh, you're right. This is going to we're going to have to figure out, you know, what the response is going to be. Not we, but they. They.
3: Yeah.
0: I just was looking at also uh, speaking of these responses at what uh, Congress is going to attempt to do in its lame duck session. And, of course, has to has to pass the NDAA again, the annual National Defense Authorization Act. I wonder if there will be any kind of fight over that this year or if it will just be a, you know. You know, it's going to be interesting to know, tacking on and tacking on. Yeah. Yeah,
1: To see if the Republicans have their act together, because there are a lot of things about the NDAA that you can complain about and vote against. Yeah. Let's see if if they have their act together enough that they can offer a concerted opposition to the NDAA. Yeah.
0: Doubtful. Doubtful. I'm going to say, I am going to say doubtful. Uh, We haven't been watching this really closely, but it also looks like Karen Bass uh, is going to win that L.A. Mayor's race, despite. Rick Caruso, the yeah. billionaire, getting the the cheerful celebrity vote. Yeah, I don't I know sp- how many people said they were going to vote for. You know, he was one of these like crazy. Uh, you know, so- socially uh, socially liberal, fiscally conservative kind yeah, of.
1: Please, you know, we've tried that before. It doesn't yeah, we work.
0: really we really have. So I guess Kate, Katy Perry and their ilk didn't sway mm-hmm. the people of L.A. to Rick Caruso. And the thing is, That's like, right. is L.A. Of course, we're talking about city politics here, but it's a big place.
1: It that actually
0: has a big budget um, mm-hmm. and California and it's, you know, it plays a big role in the state of California, which, of course, uh, plays a, quite a role in as a sort of <laughs> testing ground for for policies for the rest of the nation. Right. Yes. Some some good and some bad. So what happens in California and even what happens at the at the city level can be really important. And That's to right. that end, we also got an announcement today that a class action lawsuit has been filed uh, against the the L.A. Police system, whatever. It's been filed to to end cash bail in L.A.
1: Oh, yes. I did see that.
0: Yeah. Yes, they are. They're taking on the cash bail system, uh, the for profit bail bond system. And, yes. uh, yeah, saying no one should be caged because they can't because they're poor because they're poor. And this, of course, is um, uh, the organization that is <laughs> doing this is the Civil Rights Corps. Who have been tweeting about a a man who died in jail after having been unable to pay a five hundred dollar fine? Again, like that's not that's not what the punishment should be for you know dying in jail because you don't have five hundred dollars is simply not a thing that should be happening. That's right in the United States.
1: No, no, indeed.
0: Yeah. Um, What else have we got here? I mean, I know what I I have been eyeing that caught my eye is uh, Amazon reviving its health industry. I don't like it one bit. I hate it so much. They're laying off, uh, what, 10,000 people are the reports. Yeah. I guess we're going to hear yeah. about that tomorrow and Thursday. Uh, it just acquired One Medical, which we talked about with mm-hmm. uh, with Chris Garafa, And now it is launching Amazon Clinic, which it describes as a virtual health storefront where users can search for, connect with, and pay for telehealth care. Um, and so I guess that means it's going to be like a clearinghouse for things like maybe better help. But also uh, it, it has, gives us an examples here like connecting with a clinic for acne treatment or mm-hmm. for for pink eye or something like that. So I mean, I just, on one hand, these sort of putting these services together in a sort of one-stop shop, it is convenient for people. It's great not to have to do a bunch of different sure. discrete searches to, to look for this stuff. The problem is that not everything can be done as effectively remotely. You know, that's right. Sometimes you do need to, you do need to talk to someone. You need to have somebody look at you, look at your face, notice things that maybe you haven't noticed. You just need, I don't know. I I just do not like this trend toward, uh, hyper efficiency and, and isolation. It's not good for totally us. Totally agree. And the fact that Amazon is investing investing so much money in it, you know, like this should be a single a, a signal. They're in this to make money. That's what this is all and about. And they're making money off of us.
1: Mhm. I'm sus- I wanted to raise two things real quickly. You know, I know we try to stay away from Hollywood gossip and such, but two little developments yesterday that just make me feel kind of sad. Uh Jay Leno was severely burned on his face yesterday. Mhm. Uh, when a 1907 steam car that he was working on, that he owns, you know, he's one of the world's leading collectors of classic cars. Um, the, the car exploded while he was cleaning the, f- the fuel line. It exploded on his face and it set his clothes on fire. A friend of his rolled him down on the ground and put the flames out, but he sustained third degree burns on his face and will require skin grafts. I know how hard this is. My, my little brother was, uh, was burned when, when we were young, I was sitting next to him when it happened. I was seven and he was five. He spent three months in a, in a burn unit in a burn center in Cincinnati, Ohio, and, uh, and is still severely disfigured, uh, on his chest and shoulder. So his burns were third degree. When I read today that, that Jay Leno's burns were third degree and they were on his face, you know, good luck. Jay Lina says he he'll be out he of the needs, hospital in 10 days. He said
0: he needs a week or two to get back on yeah, his feet.
1: Best of luck with that. Yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. The other thing was Roberta Flack. Roberta Flack, the great singer and songstress from the 1970s, who, um, who won a full scholarship at Howard University at the age of 15 in music and lived for many, many years in Arlington, where not only was she a superstar, but she taught voice lessons to kids in Arlington. Her publicist said yesterday that she's been diagnosed, diagnosed with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. And not only can she not sing anymore, but she can barely speak. You know, there's no cure, of course, for ALS. Um, and uh, it, it's one of the most devastating, deadly neurological disorders known to man. I just feel bad because she has brought so much joy to so many people over so many years with that voice. It's a shame that it's going silent now. Yeah. I feel bad about that.
0: Yeah, that is. Me too. You know, I yeah. used live down the street from uh, Duke Ellington's house. Oh, wow. In D.C. And it, I always thought it was funny because, I mean, I grew up, you know, my my dad plays piano. Like, we, we I grew up listening to uh, Duke Ellington. And I always thought it was funny that it was just, just a little plaque just yeah. on a little townhouse. And I always sort of thought, like, wow, this, it feels like this should be a bigger deal. Yeah. agreed. Maybe it's, maybe it's nice to have something agreed, uh, you know, a little bit, I don't know, subtle. I'm not sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, otherwise it was kind of a slow news day day until Russian missiles maybe
0: landed in Poland. You took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say
1: every time we say that something sort of just, yeah, takes on you, a life of its own you, you can't uh, toward ever the say end it. of the
0: cycle. You can't ever say it. You can't ever say it. No. Uh, also, uh, there was a great story about a woman calling nine one one over pink I saw that. smoked barbecue. Ridiculous. <laughs> this
1: is pretty great. People need to. And uh, the cop actually came. I mean, I suppose he has to.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, she left a one star review on Yelp, and everybody's been making fun of her because she doesn't know that the the, the low temperature, long term smoking process, twelve hours at two hundred and fifty degrees. Keeps the meat pink. Yeah. Like anybody who knows anything about barbecue knows that it keeps the meat pink. It's cooked. And uh, she called 911 because her pork was pink.
0: That's just,
1: uh, wow. We
0: need, need a different method of enforcement. Oh, this is the story that I forgot about. Now we won't have time to talk about. But this uh, study on um, sperm count, hmm. human sperm counts uh, declining. Oh, boy. Uh, probably due to environmental factors that we still don't understand and can't control. But, yeah, the the rate of decline—it has been declining, and now the rate of decline uh, is increasing. Oh, boy. Yeah, which, you know, has strong implications. Of course, we also, simultaneous with this report, we, we hit 8 billion uh, total population numbers. So, you know— Maybe yeah, maybe it's not happening part. a I moment too soon. Yeah, no, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. A drop between uh, 1973 and 2018
1: of, of 51%. Wow. That's significant.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's wild. Wow. wow. Yeah, I know that's not good. So maybe we will uh, we need
1: scientists on the case.
0: Maybe we will be able to talk about that in the future. We are tomorrow going to talk about uh, a new covid report in Nature magazine that gets into the consequences of, of covid reinfection. And of course, raises the question, uh, are we in denial about how serious this is or not? I mean, the government actions don't make any sense, but that's what we've got time for today. Probably going to have a lot to get into when we come back tomorrow. A lot. So we will see you then. On behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Woody, thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you tomorrow.